We are in our second week uh, of our new series, Over the Church. Um, so we are talking about the identity of the church, and then um, in a couple weeks we're going to switch over and we're going to talk about the expression of the church. And so uh, the identity of the church and then the expression of the church. Uh, why? Um, why are we going to spend this time talking about the church? Um, one, because we believe the Bible. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And if we do believe the Bible, then we need to understand the church because the Bible talks a lot about the church. Um, in fact, it's packed full with it. Um, not only does the Bible make a big deal of the church, but our culture is mostly ignorant or misunderstands the church. And so if we look uh, at our current climate and current culture, we really don't understand what the church is, how it's supposed to operate, where it came from, its purposes, any of those things. So we're mostly ignorant, and then sometimes we just have a total misunderstanding of the church in general. Um, and so we really want to, to correct that as far as being the church. Um, and lastly... I think it's a really important topic because Jesus loves his church. God loves his church. In fact, he gave himself for it fully. And so if we want to be a people that are passionate about what God is passionate about, if we want to be near and dear to God's heart, then we are going to want to understand the church because it is at the very center of God's heart, of God's purposes. Um, and so those are just, just a couple of the reasons. Last week, um, we talked about what the church is, um, where it came from, and why we believe uh, and, and can have confidence that it's going to endure, that nothing's going to be able to stand against Christ's church because he founded it, he built it. Um, this week, we're going to continue talking about the identity of the church. Um, we're going to talk about the identity of the church as uh, seen in her relationship with God, that her relation with God is what identifies the church so, um, a couple questions, but what is identity? What is identity? Where does identity come from, uh, and how do we get it? What is identity? Where does it come from? How do we get our identity? Um, I thought a good place to start would be the dictionary. And so, uh, it says that identity is who someone is, the name of a person, or the qualities, beliefs that make a particular person or group different from others. So, Identity is basically who someone is or what something is. Now, if I were to ask you, who are you, right? If you're in a conversation, somebody asks, who are you, right? There's lots of things that come flooding to your mind as you think about my identity, who I am, right? I mean, probably physical characteristics. You would say, well, you know, like I'm this tall or I have this hair or don't or I am, uh, you know, like I have this eye color or this race or this sex right there, these physical markers that help us to be identified. Um, but, but also, you know, when you're probably describing yourself, you start thinking of, you know, what am I good at? You know, like, are there dreams or what am I passionate about? Or maybe it's even what you do for work. You know, you start thinking about what you do for work. So there's all kinds of different things that we use to identify ourselves. It's, it's a mix. Um, but as I started thinking about my own identity and how what really have, has described and, and marked me, it's really the relationships in my life, right? What really has changed me has, have, have been the relationships in my life. They've marked me and helped identify who I am. Um, but relationships aren't all equal, are they? Right? We have some people that are just acquaintances that we meet in passing, and maybe they have a mark, but it's, it's not nearly as deep and as profound as those whom we're most close with, right? Whether it's, you know, family or um, your spouse or best friends or coworkers, you know, all of us have been affected by relationships and the closest relationships to us are the ones that have 
most marked us, have most identified us. Now, our culture teaches us that you are who you choose to be, right? Who are you? Well, I am whoever I want to be, and I choose my identity. But I want to kind of unpack why that's pretty silly, (laughs) because you aren't a lot of things that you chose to be. You didn't choose the parents that you would grow up with. You didn't choose where you would be born. You didn't choose the color of skin that you have, nor the eye color. All of these things are identity markers that have been given to you. They've been granted to you because of your parents' relationships. And they mark you. Whether you like your parents or not, there's lots of things about your parents that are passed on to you despite your choice, despite your desire of those things. And some of them are really good. Some of them are, you know, you're saying, man, I wish I didn't have that. Um, But the idea is that we have things, and part of our identity isn't just our choice, but there's a big part of our identity that is something that is given to us. Given to us, especially through the relationships that are most close to us. We see that in our parents, and also we see that when we get married, we see it in our children, you know, in children, is that these, part of their identity is passed on to them, is given to them by the ones that are called to be most intimate, most close, most loving to them. And this is where it turns to the most intimate relationship that we can possibly have, God. God is the one who is most intimate, most close to us, who can most identify who we are. In Psalm 139, um, verses 16 through 17, David is a, a, I believe it could be David, but he talks about, he says, for you formed my inward parts, talking about God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is the one that is most intimate, most close to you. Not only is God the one that created you, but God is also the one that knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself, better than your parents or your spouse could ever hope to know you. He knows you inside and out, and he has intricately woven you together. Not only has God done this, but in Jesus, God has saved us. God has redeemed us or bought us back. You see, all of us at times and places are marked or identified by our mistakes, by our sin, our rebellion against God, our selfish desires towards others. But because of Christ, we can no longer, we can be identified no longer by our past and our mistakes and our sin, but we can be identified by His success by what he's done on the cross. Christ came, the holy, the perfect, blameless Son of God, and he was nailed to a cross. He was identified as a sinner, as one that had been heaped in, and guilt and shame were put upon him, that all those that trust in him, that all those that place their faith at rest, the weight of their lives upon Christ, would no longer be identified with their sin, with their past mistakes, but that they could be identified by Christ, by his love for them, by his relationship with the Father, that they would have a a new identity. And you see, this identity in Christ is the foundation. It is the most 
foundational identity that we can possibly have because of who God is, because of how he has created us and loved us and how he has bought us back. Every other identity we have is subservient, is second to this. Why? Because this is the reality, right? You can make up identities and you can be deceived about your identity. There are lots of times where we're deceived about our identity, right? Because someone treats us a certain way or we act in a certain way that we now think that we are this kind of person and we can be deceived. The truth is that when you are in Christ, you are his son, you are his daughter and that is the truth. That is the reality. Everything else can be deceived about, but this, this can't be. This is who you are, and it has got to be the foundation for who you are and how you live. Everything else comes second. You are a follower of Christ, a son or daughter of the King. Everything follows this. So why are we spending so much time talking about our personal identity when we're supposed to be talking about the identity of the church? It's because only when we understand who we are in Christ will we understand who the church is in Christ. You see, the church isn't a business, it's not a company, right? But the church is the gathering of God's people. And so as God's people individually understand their identity in Christ, the church will corporately understand their identity in Christ far more. You see, the church isn't identified by her past, present, or future mistakes. The church isn't identified by her ability to be relevant or to entertain or have programs that meet every need. The church isn't identified by others' experiences, or your bad experiences, or your amazing experiences. The church is identified by Christ, and who Christ says the church is. Why? Because Christ is the one that created the church. We read last time in Matthew 16 that Jesus says, it is my church and I will build it. Christ is the builder of his church. He is the sustainer of his church. And he is also the one that has bought his church for himself. And therefore, he and he uniquely is the one that can identify his church. How arrogant is it when we are the ones that think that we can identify the church rather than Christ, rather than God? Have you had that? Someone in your life comes and they start trying to identify you, but they don't know you. They don't really know who you are, but they judge you. And they mark you off as somebody that they, that they think because they had a bad experience once or because they heard something from somebody else. And all of a sudden they write you off. So often this is what happens with the church. Is that people hear something about the church, they have a bad experience with the church once, and therefore they think that, that I'm the one that gets to identify the church. And I can write the church off because, don't you see, I'm the one that has the expert opinion about what the church is and about how it operates. Rather than understanding that we need to humble ourselves And just as much as we want Christ to identify us, we also need to allow him to be the one that identifies his church. That he is the one to to tell us what it is. And so what I want us to to do is, is look at how does Christ identify his church? How does Christ, what does Christ say about his church? How is the church to be marked? Um, there are tons, and I had a hard time whittling it down, because there are tons of, of ways in which Christ identifies his church, right? But we're going to just focus on four of them for today. Um, now, Christ identifies his church, and in, in our day, we would kind of call it branding, right? What does it mean to brand something, right? Branding means that you are using a logo or an image or a metaphor. You're using something to distinguish something from something else, 
right? So we see it when we look at like the Apple logo, right? You have the Apple logo and you know, okay, like we know what Apple is. We know who this is standing for. We know um, what they're about, right? I mean, you have this with McDonald's, right? You you have the, the big M for McDonald's and you know who this is. Um, I mean, and you have the same thing for Nike. Nike pops up and we all think, just do it. You know, so you, you have all these things that kind of mark it. But G, you see, Jesus marks his church very differently. He doesn't mark it with just an image or with a logo, but he marks it with metaphor. He marks it with illustration, talking about who the church is and how the church is to operate. Now, there's tons of different ways, but the four that we're going to spend the most of our, the, the majority of our time talking about um, are that Jesus calls this church his flock. Jesus says that his church are the branches, that he is the vine. Jesus says that his church is to be his body, that he is the head of, and that Jesus calls his church the bride. And so we're going to go and we're just going to look at these four images briefly and and understand uh, how they are to identify Christ's church. So first, uh, Jesus said that he was the good shepherd and that his people, the church, were his sheep. John 10, verses 14 through 18 say, uh, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, how is the church like a flock of sheep? or uh, And how is Jesus our shepherd? Well, the first thing that we notice as we look at John 10 is that we are like his flock in the fact that Jesus knows us and that we are to know Jesus. Right, he says, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own, they know me. And so one of the marks of what it means to be Christ's church is it means that we are those that, that God knows. God knows us, not just in an abstract way, but in an intimate way. He knows who we are. He knows every hair on our head. He knows our struggles. He knows our frustration. He knows our dreams and our hopes. But it's not only that God knows us, but it's that we know God. You see, the mark of a true church is that they know and have a relationship with the living God. They don't just know about God, but they know God. They have a relationship with God. They're not able to just recite facts and information about God, but instead they're transformed by a living relationship with God. Part of this knowledge is that they know his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. Uh, in uh, a shepherd's look at Psalm 23, Philip Keller writes about um, he was a shepherd. And he talked about how uh, there would be times where they would go to water the sheep or they would have them in a pen and how all these different sheep from all kinds of different flocks would gather together. And so you'd have, you know, four or five different flocks together in this one pen. And you would think that all of these sheep would get confused, you know, like, I mean, they all look pretty much the same. And so how are they going to go with their shepherd? But it was amazing because whenever the shepherds would call, whenever they would speak and call their sheep, each one of the sheep, each of their flocks would separate from the others because they knew their shepherd's voice. They knew the exact tone 
And it, the amazing thing is that there would be imposters, right? There would be false shepherds that would come to steal the sheep. And they would use the, the same word that the shepherds used, but the sheep wouldn't respond. The sheep knew the tone of voice and they knew who their shepherd was and they would go to their shepherd. And that's what it means to be Christ's church is that we're not led astray by false shepherds. We're not led astray by false prophets, but instead we have the, the spirit of God in us and we discern, we're able to discern who the true shepherd is and how he leads. The second thing, another way of what it means for the church to be the flock of God is that um, it means for us to be unified. Jesus says that he will take, that he has a flock, but he's going and he's going to bring another flock. That there might not be two different ones, but there might be one unified, gathered flock of God that he shepherds. And Jesus is talking here, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? He's talking about two people that were not unified, two people that were as different as it can come, that worship different ways. But Jesus says, I have a people for myself that I am going and I will unify them. Now, if you're merging two different sheep, I can imagine there's a lot of things that are going to go on that can be rough, right? They're used to probably eating different things. They're probably used to going in, uh, in different patterns. And so it takes a shepherd patience and kindness and humility and gentleness to have these two very different flocks come and merge together. But it's the good shepherd that comes and is able to bring unity, is able to bring humility in his people that they listen to his voice that they aren't arguing and fighting with one another, but instead they're on direction and following after the shepherd. I love the picture of the, the shepherd that we had before here, just about how all the sheep are following his lead. And that is what, that is what when the two flocks come together, when they're so focused upon following after the shepherd, following his voice, following his lead, they don't have time to be bickering and fighting amongst one another. The last thing um, that we see uh, about the church being the flock of God is that Christ lays his life down for the church as a shepherd lays his life down for the flock. Sheep are not the smartest animals. In fact, they are some of the dumbest. Right? Sheep, um, if, you don't, if you're not careful, sheep will walk off a cliff. Sheep will eat poisonous things. Sheep will fight amongst themselves. Uh, not only that, but sheep are terrible at defending themselves, right? When predators come, they just kind of freeze and go, bah, you know? So, like, they are, like, easy prey. They are easy prey because they'll just freeze up and a predator will come and will, will devour them, right? And so what this means is it means that a shepherd's work is difficult. It's long. It's tiresome. Right? The shepherd has to watch over his sheep and make sure that they're not eating poisonous plants. He has to lead them to fresh fields so they're constantly getting different kinds of grass. He has to watch out for predators and guard them. He has to make sure that they're not fighting amongst themselves. And he has to, to break up fights. Not only that, but he has to rebuke those that are wayward, right? He has to go and, and, and it talks about that he goes and leaves the one they might, he leaves the 99 they might find the one wayward. And he puts them on his neck that he would bring them back. The shepherd knows his sheep intimately. He has to take care of them. He has to watch over them and make sure that they're doing well. And this is, this is long. It's tiresome. He stays up late nights, watches them all day throughout the heat, has to protect them from bears, from lions, from predators, that, hyenas that would come in and devour the flock. He has to put himself at risk so that his flock might be safe. And this is exactly what Jesus says that he does for his church, is that Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays his life down for the flock. 
of his own authority. No one takes it, but he gives it. Why? So that the church would be protected. So the church might be saved. Christ is the protector of his church. The second image that we see of Christ and his relationship with the church is that Jesus is the vine and the church is the branches. John 15, uh, verses 1 through 10, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So how does the church resemble branches and how does christ resemble the vine well one of the first things we see is that the church draws all of its strength all of its vitality from christ just as branches draw all of their strength and all of their vitality from the vine you notice that the vine is a source of nutrition and of strength for the branches whenever the vine is taken away the branches wither they have no source in and of themselves and this is the exact point for the church The church doesn't exist on its own. It doesn't have a purpose outside of Christ. The only way that the church thrives, the only way that the church bears fruit is through abiding in its relationship with Jesus Christ. It's through this abiding relationship. It's through seeing that Christ is the means of our strength, is the means of our life. It's through abiding in him, remaining in him, seeing that he is our home, he is our resting place, that we bear fruit. There is no fruit outside of him. We can fake it, we can put up false fruit, but true fruit fruit only comes when we are with Jesus as he rubs off on us. We see it more and more. I see it, I mean, just recently married two months, you know, I see it more and more how, how she rubs off on me and I rub off on her. And that through that relationship, there's change. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that he rubs off on us, that his fruit gets manifested in our life. We also see that the church, um, like branches, will be pruned so that it might bear more fruit for Christ. Uh, just got a house about eight months ago, and uh, in our house we have two uh, citrus trees. We have two orange trees. And uh, one is a fully mature orange tree, and it produces, and it's awesome because I love orange juice. And so I will. I have an orange juicer, and like I, I don't care if I take 45 minutes, but I will juice oranges to get fresh orange juice because it's delicious. And uh, and we have a smaller, we have a smaller uh, orange tree that that has only produced a little bit. You know, it's just a baby, and uh, and it produced like three or four this past year. But um, it was 
kind of neglected. Um, and so when we got there, it had been overgrown, right? And there were places that it was trying to stretch for the sun, and, and there were some dead branches. And so not that long ago, I went and was able to prune it. You know, I was able to cut back some of the branches. And there were some places that were dead, and there were some places that were overgrown, some places that I had to cut because I knew it was going to grow in this way. And, and it, you know, not fun, I'm sure, for the tree, <laughs> you know, like having these things cut down and cut off of it. But while it might hurt in the short term, it's so much more beneficial in the long term because what happens in pruning is that that plant is able to redirect its energy into the places that it will bear more fruit. And so by cutting away those places that are dead or those places that aren't going to bear fruit in the way in which it is most profitable for it, it will begin to redirect that energy into areas and it will grow into maturity and it will grow and bear more fruit and be far healthier than if it was just left alone and if it had not been pruned because those dead branches, those overgrown areas would sap strength, would take away fruit from where it was intended. This is exactly what Christ does with his church is that Christ prunes us. He cuts ways in which they're dead, in which they're overgrown, that we might be redirected, that our priorities might be seen in in greater fulfillment in Christ. Jesus comes to to prune our lives, that we would bear more fruit. And and sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard to let go of of relationships. Sometimes it's hard to let go of, of other priorities. Sometimes it's difficult to do these things. But if we don't allow Him to prune us, we won't be as fruitful as God would intend. We are the branches that God prunes in order that we might bear more fruit. The next thing that we see is that the church is to bear fruit to glorify God, just as branches bear fruit to satisfy the vine dresser. And the the parable, Jesus says that his father is the vine dresser, right? The vine dresser was the one who would, would come and, and would look and oversee the vine and oversee everything that was growing. He would be the one that would prune and he would be the one to ensure that it was producing fruit. And a healthy plant brings great joy to the vine dresser. Just as when I look out and I see that orange tree blossoming, I'm very excited and happy because I know I'm going to have a good harvest. So God, as he prunes his vine... And as he sees it producing fruit, gets great joy and great pleasure in the fact that his vine is producing fruit. Galatians five twenty two through twenty three talks about this fruit that God is desiring to see. He says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. Against such things there is no law." This is the fruit that Christ is pruning us to bear in our lives, not just individually, but corporately. The church should be growing in its love, growing in its faithfulness, growing in its ability to be gentle. These aren't just individual things, but it's also things that God is doing within his community that we would manifest these things. The only way that we bear this fruit is through abiding in Christ, remaining in him. What practically, what does it mean for you to abide in Christ? What does it mean for me to abide in Christ? Practically, it means that you believe that he loves you. Do you believe that he loves you? Are you obeying his commands? Are you demonstrating that you love him? This is what it means for us to abide in Christ, to believe his love for us, and to love him in return by keeping his commandments. His commandments would not be burdensome to us. The third illustration that we look at is uh, that Jesus is the head 
and that we are his body. Ephesians 4:15 through 16 it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So how is the church like a body? Well, the church is to express the wills and the desires of Christ just as the body is to express the wills and the desires of the head. Right? There's all kinds of different parts in the body. You have a hand, eyes, feet, legs, but yet all of them operate in unison, right? They all operate with a single purpose, namely the purpose of the head. And this is how the body of Christ is to operate. Although they're different, they operate around the same thing. They're to know and obey the purposes of the head. The body can't be at war with itself, right? Uh, if the body's at war with itself, then it's not going to be able to fulfill the purposes of the head, Instead, it's going to be too busy in conflict. And man, we see this with the church. When the church is so caught up in trivial and minor issues, when they're so busy comparing with one another, judging one another, that they forget the purpose of the head. They no longer are caught up in the mission and the purposes of God, and they become discontent. So much of our discontentment, so much of our boredom comes from from ceasing to be his hands and feet, ceasing to be the role that God has called us to play, if we would actually allow God to come and to use us to be unified around his purpose with a people, it's amazing what God would do to use us, to change this world. The next thing that we see, that the church is like a body and that everyone has a different gift set or ability. Right, the, the hand has a different function than the feet. The eyes have a different function than the ears. The mouth has a different function than the stomach. Right? There are hundreds of different and unique parts of the body that all have a purpose. Right? They all operate around a single purpose. But it would be really odd if they started to compare with one another. Right? Man, I really wish that I was the eye or I really wish that I was the ear. That they're all instead unique and important. Instead of comparing ourselves or instead of feeling insignificant or feeling prideful about our role, if we would instead realize that, that God is the one that makes everything work, that he is the one that has gifted us and called us to be wherever we're at, and that every part of the body is important, every part of the body is vital for it to work. Right? You never understand how much you, your big toe is important until you smash it, and then you realize, wow, that was a really important part of the body that I took for granted. And the same thing is true for our body. It's so often we just we neglect or we ignore certain parts of the body because they're not as visible. And we totally forget how necessary and how important they are. We have to speak this over one another. We have to encourage each other with these words because we get discouraged. We forget that God has gifted us. God has called us to be a part of his body, to serve his purpose, and that every member is important. I mean, imagine, imagine that your leg all of a sudden just didn't want to cooperate, right? It said, today, we don't want to walk. You'll be dragging your leg everywhere. Or what, what if your arms just said, listen, we're not going to operate today. We're just going to, we're going to let your mouth do all the work, right? It'd be a pretty frustrating day. You'd learn to use your teeth and your mouth a lot in, in different ways than you intended. And so 
we ha- if if certain members of the body to say, well, today I just don't feel like following Jesus. You know, today I just I feel like doing what I want to do. How does that how does that affect the body? I just think I want to stay home and I don't really want to show up. I really don't want to serve because I'm just not in the mood for it. Man, it drastically affects the body and its ability to function as God has called it to function. That it's as each member of the body are abiding and listening to the head that the body operates as it was intended to. And it's a beautiful thing when the body, when the hand is in operation with the head and the mouth is doing the same thing. You can actually move and talk. You become a, a living organism, a living being. Um, the last, uh, the last part that I want to, the last illustration I want us to focus on is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. Ephesians five, uh, verses twenty-two through thirty-three say, "Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord." For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So how is the church like a bride and how is Christ like a bridegroom? The first thing that we see is that the the church is called to submit and respect Christ. The church is called to submit and to respect Christ. Christ is the leader as the husband of his church. But you see, he leads his church not with selfish desires, He doesn't lead his church with being power-hungry or abusive. But Christ leads his church selflessly, self-sacrificially. He gives himself to his church. Christ has bought his church. He has done these things, and therefore the church responds to Christ's lead through respecting him, through submitting to him. Practically what this means is it means that the church hears God's word and obeys it. They hear God's commands and instead of fighting with it, instead of rebelling, instead of saying, well, today I'm not really in the mood, they instead submit themselves to Christ's commands. They respect Christ as their leader, as their their lover, and they obey, they follow him rather than following themselves. They honor Christ. The next thing we see is that the church is like a bride and that she is called to be pure and faithful to the Lord. There are lots of other lovers that the church can possibly have. Whether it's power, politics, whether it's popularity or relevance. There are lots of other things that the church can give herself to, give her heart to. But like a bride, the church is called to remain pure and called to remain faithful because of the one who has been pure and faithful to us. 
And so the, the church is a bride who has been washed clean and white, and therefore she continues to endure in her faithfulness. This means that each day as we wake up corporately, as we choose to be faithful to Christ, as we choose to realize the temptations to leave him, the, the desires and temptations of the world, as we reject these, and as we choose Christ instead, we show and demonstrate his worth. I know for my, my beautiful bride, when she is faithful to me, when she loves me, I feel honored, I feel respected, I feel encouraged. And this is exactly how Christ feels when his bride is pure and is faithful to him. How do you think it, it makes Christ feel when his bride rejects him? When his bride instead chooses worthless and foolish things over him, it grieves his heart because he loves his bride. The church is like a bride in that she's called to be pure and faithful to Christ. The church is like a bride in that she is beautiful and she is cherished by Christ. Christ gave himself for his church, not because his church was beautiful, but instead to make his church beautiful. You see, all of us as his church have committed adultery. The book of Hosea, I think, paints this most evident in that God called Hosea, this prophet, to go to his people Israel at the time who were forsaking him and choosing other gods that weren't really gods, and they were worshiping these things. And Hosea went and married a prostitute. And he loved her faithfully, even though she committed adultery. And he continued to love her over and over again, faithfully, consistently, that he might demonstrate the way that God has loved us. And this is what God has done for us in Christ, is that though we have been unfaithful, though we have chased other things, whether it's a relationship, whether it's entertainment, whether it's a job, whether it's a false desire, though we have put other things before Christ, Christ loved us. Christ was faithful to us. Christ cherished us and made us beautiful. And and it's understanding that this is who he says we are as his church. It's not because we have done these things or it's not because we have been beautiful or we have been worthy of being cherished. It's not that we have this intrinsic beauty and worth in ourselves. It's the fact that Christ has given us beauty and has made us worthy of being cherished by his death, by his love. It's believing these things, that you are cherished by Christ, that you are beautiful in his sight because of what he's done for you, because he declares it. This is what it means to be his church. The last thing I want to point out is that the church is like a bride and that the church is one with Christ, is one flesh with him. He says, uh, Paul talks about that the mystery is profound, that when a man and a woman leave one another, they become one flesh. They cling together, and their identities change. They are no longer seen as two, but instead they are now seen as one. And he says, this mystery is profound, and he says it's speaking of Christ and the church. So what he means is he means that, that the church is no longer a separate entity outside of Christ. But instead, the church is a part of Christ. And man, this is such a profound mystery, and I'm not able to do it justice in the short time that we have. But we see this all throughout the New Testament. This is one of the most profound things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be his church, is that you see it when Saul is persecuting the church, right? In Acts, when, when the apostle Paul, before he became an apostle, is killing Christians, is, is carrying commands and helping, aiding in the, the killing of Christians. As he goes, and as he's on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears, right? This bright, shining light, and Saul is blinded. And Jesus says this, so peculiar, so interesting. He says, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I mean, isn't that such an interesting statement? Saul had been persecuting people, Christians, right? But Jesus says, no, Saul, who you're persecuting is me. Why? It's because Christ says that he is one with his people. You cannot separate the church from Christ, but instead they are one. And this is so, so vital. The book of Ephesians talks about it. Man, for a practical application, read the book of Ephesians this week because it constantly is talking about the mystery of being in Christ, of being in him, and how that changes everything about who we are and about how we live. But when we understand that the way that you treat other Christians, the way that you treat the church, is the way that you are treating Jesus. There are no differences. You cannot say, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. When we ignore, when we begin to ignore Christ's people, we are ignoring him. When we begin to treat Christ's people harsh and selfishly, we are treating Christ this way. Christ is one with his people. He cannot be separated. He is one flesh and he loves people. And this means that we are identified with him and by his actions rather than our own. This is such good news. His success is our success. So these are just a couple images. We just talked about four. Literally, there's some say almost a hundred different images of and, and metaphors and illustrations of who the church is and how the church operates in Christ. But guys, the big idea that I really want to hammer and I hope that you get is that the church is identified by her relationship with Christ. The church is not identified by her mistakes. The church is not identified by her sin. The church is not identified by our experiences, good or bad. The church is identified by Christ and who he says that she is. And we've looked and seen that, that we are like sheep and that Jesus knows and protects us, that we are like branches, that Jesus grows and sustains us, that we are his body, that Jesus guides and gifts to us, that we are his bride, that Jesus loves and purifies that we are united to him, made as one. How do you see the church? Do you interact and treat the church as a bride? Do you interact and treat the church as one that, that is Christ's flock, that he cares for, that he protects? Not only do we need to see the church as identified by these things, but we are the church. You, personally, are part of Christ's flock. You are the sheep that God knows and protects. You are the branch that he is sustaining with his vine. You are a member of his body that he is gifted and used and is continuing to desire that he would plug you in and use you in more profound ways. That you are his bride that he would give himself for. That he would clothe you in white and love you. Let what Christ says about who you are define you and set you free as we together corporately are his church and live out his purpose in this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one that uniquely is able to identify us, that you set us free from our past, from our sin. Help us, Christ, to hear your words to us and to receive them, to believe that we are loved by you and to love you in return. Help us, God, as we read the Bible, as we read through your scriptures, that we wouldn't just just think solely individually, but we instead think corporately about your church and who you call your people to be. That you've called us not as rogue individuals, but instead you've called us together as your people to, to glorify you. 
be with us this day. Move through us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Convict us. We want you. Help us not to settle for anything less. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen.